But now, as I begin this morning, uh, the Confession of Faith, page 676 in the back of the blue hymnal, page 676, I have to start with a correction last week, from last week. Last week we considered effectual calling, and in paragraph 4, which has to do with the necessity of effectual calling, the paragraph ends by saying, uh, and therefore people cannot be saved, much less can men that do not receive the Christian religion be saved, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of religion they do profess, period. And last week, I mistakenly thought that there was an additional phrase, which was this, and to assert and maintain that they may is without warrant for the word of God. And I said that I would look up where that actually came from. What I what I found, as best I could figure out, it comes from an earlier edition of the Westminster Confession. The final version of the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration from 1647 say, quote, and to assert and maintain that they may is very pernicious and to be detested. And the, the statement, and to assert and maintain that they may is without warrant of the word of God, is not a London Confession, never was, but it was from an earlier version of the, or edition of the Westminster Confession. So I thought that I needed to simply clear that up. I said that I would look up and try to find where it came from, and that's what I was able to find out, okay? So let's clear that up. Now let's move on to chapter 11, Justification. The next blessing of the Christian life that the confession addresses is the very crucial issue of justification. And the way I've outlined it is this. First of all, in paragraph one, they set forth the overall concept of justification. They talk about the author, receiver's essence, ground, and means. Then, in paragraphs two, three, and four, they address the distinguishing features of justification. They talk about its exclusive means, genuine faith, its exclusive cause, God's righteous grace, and its occasion, its historical occasion, which is conversion. So they specify these three features. Then in paragraphs five and six, they address possibly questions that as pastors they got asked by their people or maybe by their kids in family worship or something like that to what I would call practical applications or potential tensions or questions associated with justification. Well, if I'm justified once and for all from all my sins at conversion, well, what about ongoing forgiveness and confessing my sin and parental forgiveness? And what about confession and forgiveness of my remaining sin in the Christian life? How does that relate to my justification? Well, they address that issue in paragraph 5. And in paragraph 6, well, 
If justification is on the ground of Christ and his obedience alone, and it's by means of faith, well, how does that relate to the justification of Abraham and David before Christ ever came and did his actual obedience in history? How were they justified before Christ came and obeyed? Before the ground of justification was actually performed and accomplished in history, how were they justified before that? That's paragraph six. And so in paragraphs five and six, I think what they're doing is I believe they're addressing a couple of issues or questions or practical applications or ramifications of justification with regard to things like the ongoing remaining sin and forgiveness of those sins and confessing of those sins and the justification of Old Testament saints before the ground of their justification was actually accomplished in history. Follow? All right, so they deal with those two questions in paragraphs five and six. So the way I, I, I outline this and present this is you have the overall concept or idea of justification in paragraph one then three crucial distinguishing features of justification in paragraphs 2, 3, and 4. And then in paragraphs 5 and 6, questions or issues that are usually related to justification that require to be addressed. Questions that either people asked or that their kids asked. You know, well, how does it fit with this? And how does it fit with that? So they address those two questions in paragraphs 5 and 6. Make sense? All right. The overall concept of justification. Those whom God effectually calls, paragraph 10, or chapter 10, sorry. He also freely justifies. And then they have this series of contrasts. What he doesn't do, what he does do. Not by infusing righteousness into them. pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness by faith. Which faith they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. All right, let's go through this concept. The author, God the Father. Those whom God calls he also freely justifies. Simply, Romans 8.30, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called, and whom he called, then he also justified. And Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ. It's clear in Romans 8.30 that the person specifically in view is God the Father. The receivers are believing sinners. Romans 4, 5. But 
to him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is taken unto account unto righteousness, etc. Now what then is justification? Observe what it is not. It is not by infusing righteousness into them. Justification is not moral renewal. It's not a changing of the heart. It's not a moral change in God's operating room that takes place in the heart and soul of a person. It's not that. But then what is it? It is a judicial finding and pronouncement and accounting of God the judge. It takes place not in the moral operating room. It takes place in the divine court room. It is a judicial act, finding, verdict, pronouncement. It is a judicial vindication. Not by infusing righteousness, but by pardoning and by accounting and accepting. Pardoning sin, accounting and accepting persons as righteous. By the obedience of the one shall the many be made righteous, accounted and accepted as righteous. It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It's a judicial verdict. The opposite of a verdict of guilt. It's a verdict of acquittal. And in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 1 we read. If there is a controversy between men. And they come to judgment. The judges judge them. They will justify the righteous, and condemn the wicked. It takes place in a courtroom. It's a verdict of a judge. They will find and pronounce the righteous vindicated, and they will find the wicked guilty. When it says that the judges will justify the righteous. It doesn't mean that the judges infuse righteousness into the soul of the righteous. That's not what it means. It means that the judges are going to find the righteous to be innocent. And it means that they're going to find the wicked to be guilty. And pronounce the righteous innocent, not guilty, acquitted. And the wicked guilty, condemned. So just like it is God that justifies, who is he that condemns? It's a judicial finding, a judicial pronouncement, a judicial accounting that takes place in the courtroom of God the judge. That's the idea of justify. And again, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 17, verse 15, he that justifies the wicked and he that condemns the righteous. Both of them alike are an abomination to Jehovah. Now let's suppose that justify means to infuse righteousness into a wicked person. 
to make a wicked person morally good. If that's what justify means. So, he that makes a wicked person morally good is an abomination to Jehovah. Does that make sense? No, it can't be what the text means. To justify the wicked is not to make the wicked morally good. Why would that be an abomination? He that makes a wicked person morally good is an abomination. No. But he that pronounces a wicked person, he that perverts justice and pronounces a wicked person innocent, a guilty person innocent, that's an abomination. So to convict an innocent man is an abomination. And to let a guilty man go free is an abomination. Because those things, both of them, both extremes are perversions of justice. So justification takes place in a courtroom. It's a judicial act and a judicial verdict. That's what it is. That's why they say not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting their persons to be righteous. Now just a minute. Just a minute. You're talking about justifying sinners. Isn't that a violation of the very principle of righteousness that these texts are saying? Isn't that what judges are not supposed to do? How can God be just and vindicate sinners that are held deserving? There's the mystery of justification. And now... What they're going to specify next is the ground of justification. What's the ground? How can God vindicate judicially those that deserve to go to hell? Here's the answer. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith, the act of believing or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness. But how does God do that? But by imputing Christ's obedience, active and passive, as their whole and sole righteousness received by means of faith. The righteousness of God is imputed to them. By the obedience of the one shall the many be made righteous. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. And he made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. All of the sins of all of his people are imputed to Christ. And Christ endures in his passive obedience unto death all the wrath of God due to those sins, so that the wrath of God is pacified and the justice of God satisfied for all the sins of all his people, that he might be just and the justifier of him that has faith in Jesus. And Christ perfectly obeys. He does everything that all the righteousness of God requires him to require for acceptance with God. Christ has done it all. And God imputes to those who believe all that Christ has done in his perfect obedience to the law of God and in his complete satisfaction and pacifying the wrath of God due to those sins. And 
All that Christ did in his obedience unto death is imputed to those who believe. That's the ground on which he vindicates in his courtroom those who deserve to go to heaven. That's what the confession says. Does it make sense? And it's absolutely biblical and right, as I've been quoting from these passages of Scripture. The ground is Christ's obedience, his perfect obedience. And what's the means? By faith. Which faith? They have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ unto all that believe. Faith is the instrumental means. It is the, the empty hand that receives the virtue of Christ and trusts in him. Faith is the only criterion that God looks for. What is God looking for in his determination to impute the righteousness of Christ to a sinner? It is this. Does that sinner believe in my son? If he sees faith, he imputes Christ's righteousness. Without faith, there's no imputation of Christ's righteousness. Faith is the exclusive and only means. It is the sole criterion. It's not the ground. It's not the virtue of faith. It is the fact of faith. And when he sees faith, he imputes Christ's righteousness. And that's the only means that he employs Where's the boasting then? Romans 3, 27 and 28. It's excluded by what law of works? No, faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith, that is by means of faith, without the works of the law. Galatians 2, 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law will no flesh be justified. Ephesians 2, verse 7 and 8, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. That is, the whole thing of salvation by grace through faith is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. So that's what the confession says. It specifies the author, God the Father, the receiver, believing, hell-deserving sinners. The essence, judicial vindication. He constitutes them legally righteous by imputing to them the righteousness of Jesus Christ in his life and death, his active and passive obedience. And that is the only ground of justification. And then he declares them legally righteous and vindicates them as the judge. And the means? Faith. And it's all of God. Even being saved by faith. Okay? Follow? That's what it says. I believe what it says is biblical. Now, the next three paragraphs, paragraphs 2, 3, and 4, are going to open up three distinguishing features of this justification of ungodly believing sinners. The first thing is this, the means. The sole means of justification, and that is genuine faith, paragraph two. The second thing is this, the sole cause of justification, and that is 
grace. And thirdly, the historical occasion, the only occasion of justification, and that is conversion. Faith, grace, conversion. These are distinguishing features. Justification is by faith. It's because of grace, and it takes place at conversion. Grace, faith, conversion. Does that make sense? All right, let's go through it. Paragraph 2. Faith in this manner or thus, receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet, so that's why I say genuine faith. Because this is the characteristic of genuine faith. Yet, genuine faith, yet, is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. The unique role of genuine faith is that it is the alone or sole means of justification. And yet, they also speak about the necessary evidence of genuine faith because there are other counterfeit forms professing to be faith that are not saving faith. There's the faith of demons and there's the temporary faith of apostates that are explicitly mentioned, who for a while believe, and in a time of temptation, fall away. And James says, can that faith save him? Even the demons have that kind of faith and shudder. So the faith of demons, hypocritical faith, the faith of apostates, temporary faith, these counterfeit forms are not genuine, saving faith. And so that's the concern of the second paragraph. It's to distinguish genuine, saving faith, which is the exclusive and sole means of justification, from the counterfeits that are around. The necessary evidence of genuine faith, yet it is not alone in the person justified. The unique role Romans 3.28, justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The necessary evidence, Galatians 5.6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. And James 2.17, even so faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Seeing how faith wrought with his works, and by works faith was made complete. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead too. So don't be deceived. That just simply for a while professing to be a Christian, or walking down an aisle once, or raising your hand once, or saying a little prayer once, it's not the same thing as having genuine saving faith. Genuine saving faith trusts in Christ, and it trusts in Christ permanently for the rest of your life. 
not temporarily. And genuine saving faith always produces a godly life. Not a perfect life, but a godly life. Right now, the next thing is the sole cause of justification. And in order to speak about the grace of God, they they got a mouthful for you. So here's how they put the sole cause of justification. Now, I refer to it as God's righteous grace. Righteous grace. Not that there's anything like, there's no such thing as unrighteous grace. That's not the point. Or just grace. If I say just grace, you say, oh, just grace? See, that doesn't sound right. Just there is a synonym for righteous. The opposite of just there is unjust. Just there doesn't mean merely. Just grace is not merely grace. But just grace is righteous grace. So, anyway. They're talking about God's just or righteous grace. And here's what they say. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those who are justified and did by the sacrifice of himself and the blood of the cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due to them, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice on their behalf. Now that's the foundation or ground of God's righteous grace. That in the accomplishment of redemption, Christ made a full and complete satisfaction of the justice of God. Justice of God demanded the punishment of sinners. And Christ satisfied the demand of justice in his atonement. Fully and completely. Now, the next thing is they affirm God's righteous grace. Yet, inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them. Their justification, and this is the whole point of the entire thing, their justification is only, solely, exclusively, only, the only cause, their justification is only of free grace. That's the point. It's only of grace. Grace is the exclusive cause of their justification. It's grace. It's only grace. Just like faith is the only means, grace is the only cause. It's all of grace. It's just and righteous grace because God in Christ, and he sent Christ, and he was pleased with Christ, who satisfied the demands of justice. And then this is the result of righteous grace that both exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. So Christ made atonement. Christ died for us. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. He spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. 
And he offered to God a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. The Bible abundantly affirms this. And it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us, verse 7 of Titus 3, that being justified by his grace. And Ephesians 1.7, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And then Romans 3.24-26 sums it up. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ. That the ground of free grace, unmerited favor, is the redemption in Christ Jesus. And how is that connected? It's connected this way. Whom God set forth as propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness through for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God and that he might himself be just, righteous, and the justifier of him that has faith in Jesus. In order that the justice and grace of God. So God's grace is not unjust grace because of what Christ has done. I heard a theologian put it this way once. It really struck me. I think it was Donald McLeod, but it's been so long ago. Please don't. Said uh, the opposite of justice is not mercy or grace. The opposite of justice is injustice. Bingo. With regard to mercy and grace, there is no injustice with God. His grace is just. It is righteous grace. And that just or righteous grace is the sole ground of justification. And finally, the final feature is the occasion of justification, which is conversion. Redemption applied. Sinners are not justified in eternity before the foundation of the world when they're elected. They're not justified at Calvary when Christ dies and provides the ground of their justification. They're justified in their own life history at their conversion when they believe in Jesus. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit in time does actually apply Christ to them. Clear, huh? It's justification by faith. So that 
According to Ephesians 2.3, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And Titus 3.4-7, by his mercy he saved us, that being justified by his grace, we're justified by his grace when he saves us at our conversion. We're justified by faith. Well, that's a tension. You mean that his elect, before we were converted, before we came to faith, were under the wrath of God, that we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest? Yes. Well, what happened? What would have happened if his elect died in that state? Here's the point. They don't. They never do. They never can. Because God brings all of his elect to faith in Christ. That's the way he works. Whom he predestined, them, all of them, without exception, he also calls. And whom he calls, them, all of them, he also justifies. And whom he justifies, them he also glorifies. Predestined, glorified. No exceptions. So, yeah, there's a tension there, but there's not a problem there because whom he predestines, them he also calls, and whom he calls, them he also justifies, and whom he justifies, them he also glorifies. No exceptions. Which brings me to the questions, the issues. So let's suppose this is true. You've got the overall concept. You have its distinguishing features. Faith, grace, conversion. Right? The overall idea that God vindicates, judicially vindicates, God the judge, God the father, judicially vindicates believing sinners who deserve to go to hell by means of their faith because of grace on the ground of what Jesus Christ did, which he imputes to them when they believe. Well, all right. Well, how does that relate then to me as a Christian and my remaining sins? And if that's all true, if I've been justified once for all, for all my sins, past, present, and future, what about remaining sin? Does that mean I don't have to confess my sins anymore? Well, how about God supposed to forgive my sins? I thought he forgave all my sins already. What? How does this all fit together? Who do you think asked that? God's people or the pastor's children that wrote the confession? Both. I suspect both. I don't know. Was I alive in the 1600s to know the answer to that question? Don't answer that. Right. Right, The relation of justification for all of our sins, past, present, and future, once for all, Judicial vindication for all our sins, how does that relate to ongoing parental forgiveness of remaining sin? God continues to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from the state of justification, it's permanent. All your sins, judicially, past, present, and future, with all the liability to hell that goes with them, forever forgiven, and the vindication permanent, unchangeable. 
Yet. 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 They may, by their sins, that is, remaining sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure. That's the key to understanding what they're talking about. Fatherly displeasure. It's not talking about God the judge in the courtroom and legal liability to go to hell for your sins. That's done. Now it's talking about what I call God's fatherly or paternal forgiveness. That goes along with fatherly displeasure. He continues to forgive the sins of those that are justified. Yet they can fall by their remaining corruptions under his fatherly displeasure. And in that condition, that is being under his fatherly displeasure, even though they're justified, in that condition of being under God's fatherly displeasure because of remaining sin, they usually don't have the light of his countenance restored to them until they humble themselves, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. So it's talking about the ongoing paternal fatherly forgiveness and fatherly displeasure that are connected with believers and remaining sin. And it's possible for those who are justified, without losing their justification, which is permanent, to fall under his fatherly displeasure by indulging in remaining sins and coming under his chastening until such time, as a father, until such time as they repent and believe in Christ and he forgives them. And well, how do they support this? Jesus teaches believers to pray for parental forgiveness for remaining sin. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And John 1, 7 and 9. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't mean that we lose our justification every time we sin, remaining sin, or ask our Father to forgive us. There is a distinction between the once-for-all judicial pardon of justification and the ongoing parental forgiveness of the Christian life. The ongoing parental forgiveness of the Christian life has to do with remaining sin. The once-for-all judicial pardon and acceptance as righteous and vindication of justification from God the judge has to do with all our sins. We're not only justified from past sins, we're justified from all sins. Past, present, and future. And yet, there is this ongoing parental forgiveness of remaining sin. Both things are true. And you see why they felt some tension with regard to that issue and wanted to address it? Mm, I think so. And then there's repentance and restoration. Psalm 32. 
I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity I have not hid. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 51. Purge me and I'll be clean. This is David talking. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And then they also uh, speak about Matthew 26. Peter. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus and which he said to him, before the cock crow, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So there's restoration to fellowship. There's also the, the idea of divine chastening. Um, they, they, they cite the matter of uh, John the Baptist's father. He says in Luke one twenty, Behold, you'll be dumb and not able to speak until the day these things come to pass, because you didn't believe my words. And 1 Corinthians 11.30, which says, for this cause, because of the disorders that were there, many are weak and sickly, and not a few sleep. But when we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord, that we shouldn't be condemned with the world. It's talking about fatherly chastening of the Lord, because of the indulgence of remaining sin in a church. So those are the passages that they cite to support it. They go to 1 John, they go to those passages in Corinthians and the Gospels, etc. Now finally, the relation... Well, what about the Old Testament saints? I mean, David pronounces blessing on those to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. And Abraham justified by faith. But he thought that the grounds of justification was the life of Christ, what he accomplished in history. So how could they be justified before that happened? Before Christ came? Well, this is what they say about that. This is their last thing. The justification of believers under the Old Testament was in all these respects one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. To show his righteousness in the passing over of sins done aforetime in the forbearance of God. Same ground. So in all these respects, the same overall concept of God the Father justified David when he believed. A judicial vindication on the ground of Christ imputed to him by means of faith. On the grounds of genuine faith, I'm sorry, by means of genuine faith alone, because of just righteous grace alone, at conversion when they believe. In all these respects, one and the same. How did God impute the righteousness of Christ to them before it happened in history? You know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that one. I can't answer that. All I can say is he did. They were justified when they believed on the grounds of what Christ was going to do. And then he came and did it. And when he did it, it demonstrated that God was righteous in doing what he did before Christ came.
That's what Paul says. And I'm quite content to leave it there. So those are the two practical questions or, quote, perplexing questions about justification. How does justification relate to parental ongoing forgiveness with regard to the remaining sin of Christians? And how does justification relate to the justification by faith of Old Testament saints before Christ actually came to do in history the ground of their justification? I'm done for today.